Amen. Thank you, Miles, for sharing that. I always really, really enjoy just getting to remember that of it. Uh, it really can start with one highly emotional, incoherent moment with Jesus that translates to a life that at the time, I'm, I'm just even as he was saying that, I, I assumed that he would bring that up, honestly, but thinking about it right now, just as he said it, like I'm putting myself back in that moment. I could not guess at half the things, even more than that, that the Lord's done in my life of just where I would be without him. And I know that's true for many of y'all. So thank y'all for letting me just have that moment of revelation, but I'm excited to be here with y'all. Um, and I need to just in this moment, gain a little bit of, um, sympathy, empathy with y'all. Um, I think it needs to be stated that after yesterday of the three pastors on our staff, I am the only one who truly understands our pain. <laughs> Neither of them went to Auburn and we're still praying for Gage's sanctification. Um, I know it's going to be harder after yesterday for him to process through that darkness, but we're still praying that it can happen. Um, but in that, I, I went to Auburn. I've been here for a while, so I understand your pain. But let us take hope in the fact that it actually feels like we're having a real fall for the first time in a while. Is anybody else excited about that? I grew up in Northern Virginia and we had four real seasons, like actually real seasons. We don't have winter here in Auburn. And if you, if you didn't know that, we have like this fake fall that eventually happens for about two weeks in December. But I like that we got up this morning and it felt very comfortable to be in a jacket. So I'm feeling good, ready to go. I'm not from Buffalo, no matter how many times Miles tries to tell you that. I am a huge Bills fan. I know we have some other Bills fans in the room. Yeah, see, good, there we go, there we go. Good things spread, y'all. We would love to have you on the bandwagon now before we win the inevitable Super Bowl that we will win at some point in my lifetime. And I'm just proclaiming that in faith. Like Miles said, my son Maverick is about to turn two. Um, and so that's a whole thing in and of itself, a lot of fun. I am abundantly excited that the Fagans just invited Tully McKay into this world because we are having a daughter in like three or four weeks and I am so excited that they get to be best friends. Just super blessed by that. But I just wanted to share a story that um, really struck me recently with Maverick. I don't have um, a lot of highly emotional moments with him, mostly because when he's upset, he wants mom. I think that's normal. We're praying through that. I'm praying through that. I'm sitting there working at our dining room table, just working on something on my computer. He had kind of just gotten up from his nap. He's running around like a crazy two-year-old boy does. And he runs up to me and he said, Dada, like, and he's like, get up. And I'm like, okay, Matt, like, what, what, what do you need? And he just picks up his arms. And I'm like, do you want me to pick you up? Like, floored that that's what he wanted. So I picked him up and he squeezed my neck for like five seconds, longest hug I've ever really gotten from him unless he was upset. And I'm just sitting there in that moment. And I just, I start sobbing. Cause I'm like, this is such a sweet moment. And then the Lord brought my, brought that back to my mind for the next like three mornings, just saying like, that is his response when we come to him. He doesn't need anything from us. Like he doesn't need us to do anything for him, but he just wants us to come to him. So as we gather today, as we open up his word, as we go to his scripture to learn about things about us, things about him, things about this world that we need to carry with us out of today, would you just know that that is our father's heart towards us? He wants us to just come to him. So would you come with expectation as we open up the word today? Um, I wrote down just a, a couple people were really on my heart this morning. So if that's you in this room, 
an extension location, but if you're a person who's just kind of like maybe I think of myself in that first initial moment with Miles, just bubbling up with passion for the Lord, a lot of zeal, but you don't know how to apply it, just know that I see you and the Lord wants to use that zeal. If you're a mom or a dad who just likes this church because we do have unbelievable uh, ACC kids, volunteers and teachers, and it's a great place to bring your kids, know that you're welcome here and the Lord sees you even in your weariness. If you're a new person that you don't know if you believe somebody dragged you here, just know that honestly, the Holy Spirit sees you in this moment and he's so glad you're here. So I just, that was on my heart. I just wanted to share that. If that doesn't apply to you, just know I'm glad you're here too. Even though you weren't specifically on my heart in that moment. So we've been in a series going through the gospel of Luke, kind of jumping to different spots with the, the subtitle, if you will, the invitation of Jesus. So we've been seeing through a lot of different ways, pictures of Jesus in this gospel extending the invitation to come and follow him, to live life with him, to live life like him through a lot of different ways. And so as we pick up, I just wanna encourage you, if you did not watch last week's, please go back and watch it. I'm gonna do a little bit of a recap right now, but you need to go back to that to kind of hear about it um, in more depth. But last week we talked about the story of the rich young ruler. He was a guy that came to Jesus, was kind of in, like was really passionate about Jesus. He was rich, he was young, um, he was a ruler, if you haven't heard. Um, very important guy in society, well-respected. People thought he was a big deal. So it's like from a church building perspective, if we'll say it that way, this is a guy you want on the team. Jesus in this moment doesn't make it easy for him, not out of judgment or harshness, but instead this guy's coming like, what must I do? I've been following the law. We don't think he was bragging. We really think that he was serious. Like he had been zealously following the Lord for a long time. And Jesus tells him, you have to go sell everything and follow me. And that's like a intense invitation, but Jesus was putting his finger right on the fact that this guy had attachments to the world that were prohibiting him from fully surrendering to Jesus and following him. And Jesus, I'll just add this, Miles and I talked about this this week. Jesus is at some urgency in this moment with the rich young ruler because he's literally packing to go to Jerusalem. Meaning like go to Jerusalem for the last time where he's gonna die. Like he's like, there's not really a lot of time left. We don't really have time to play games. Surrender it all and follow me. And so I just wanna read back some of the things that, that quotes I wrote down that stuck out to me from last week's message. You cannot receive Jesus when your hands are full. I always think of this picture. Um, I have this weird scar on my right finger, uh, intramural flag football, clearly not a D1 athlete, but man, did I play intramurals. Last year playing or any organized football whatsoever, I hurt my finger like the second game. I was like, it's a finger injury, gonna ignore it. But what had happened is I had, pulled, I had like torn a tendon in my finger, ignored it the whole season. So it was stuck like this. So I went to Michael Fagan after two months of my finger being like this. And I was like, what do you think? And he's like, you should have gone to the doctor two months ago. And so they, they do surgery, it's, it's fine, but it still looks janky and it can't really like straighten fully because it was stuck like this for over four months during the recovery. When your hands are stuck closed like this, sometimes it's really hard to peel your fingers open. We can't receive Jesus when our hands are full of stuff, when you're holding on so tightly, so scared to lose things. And so in this moment, whatever that is for you, I just wanna encourage you to surrender that. Miles also said, we have so many Christians who are converted, but not surrendered. Meaning like there is scripture in the Bible that's like, there are people who will make it in as though through fire, like barely making it in. Like you might know Jesus be converted but true life is found on the other side of surrender. So I wanna read kind of his two questions that he put to us just to, again, get us in this headspace because we're really picking up right after the prodigal son story, rich young ruler, where we're gonna go today. So I just want us all to be on the same page as we go to this. 
Miles asks us, what attachment must be released for you to fully surrender? What attachment must be released for you to fully surrender? And is exalting and enjoying Jesus your version of eternal life? And so I just wanna ask you humbly, did you ponder, think about, answer those questions this past week? Because I know for me personally, I got to about Wednesday morning and I realized that I had kind of answered the first one, but hadn't made it practical in any way and had just like kind of checkmarked the second one. Like, yep, for sure. But then the more I think about it, I'm like, is that really true of my life? And so I say that to say this whole series, we have been hitting this idea of, we really wanna be hearers of Jesus's invitation and doers, not just hearers. We don't wanna stop at just hearing the invitation. We wanna follow him in the invitation. The rich young ruler, he was in. He had all the pieces, the parts. He had followed the Lord. He had surrendered so many things in his life. But we have to be doers of what Jesus said to follow in his way. And so on the way to Jerusalem, we see him leave the rich young ruler. He starts telling multiple parables, all kind of using money as a common theme as he's going, really just because money is the most tangible example of things you've been entrusted with in your life. That's kind of the main idea there. If it sticks out to you that it's money, you can talk to the Lord about that. But on the way, he ran into somebody else. And if you grew up in um, vacation Bible school or Sunday school, you know a song. I'm not gonna sing it because it would make you sad if I sang it. So maybe Michael and the band can sing it after this. But he ran into a guy named Zacchaeus who, and as much as I hate the terms of the song, was probably about Miles and I's height. Uh, he was a shorter guy and he was a chief tax collector, meaning all of the Jewish people could not stand this guy. Tax collectors, if you didn't know this, they would collect taxes for the Romans. But if the Romans wanted this much, they would collect this much. And so they were super rich. Like with the backing of the Romans, Romans knowing they're doing this, they collected way more than the Romans were taking in, which the Romans were already taking a, an oppressive level of taxes. So they were basically traitors to the Jewish people is how they're viewed in Jewish society. So this guy's like one of the really important ones. Nobody likes him. Everybody knows who he is. He's, for some reason, we don't have any backstory, but he is drawn into this person of Jesus. So as Jesus is going through Jericho, Jericho has been rebuilt as a city at this time, but it's kind of on the way to Jerusalem where Jesus is going. Zacchaeus hears that he's coming. He's like, clearly there's no chance I'm gonna see over the crowd. Um, that's why I always kind of stand in a point where I can see down the aisle if I wanna see the stage when we're all standing up because I'm not gonna be able to see over the crowd. And so he wants to climb a tree so he can see Jesus. So he is literally up in this tree, a very undignified position to be in. And Jesus sees him, looks at him and says, come down immediately, I have to stay at your house. And it says that he came down quickly and joyfully. He immediately responded to the invitation of Jesus because he knew there is no reason, no logic to the fact that Jesus would invite himself into his house. In Jewish culture, if you like went to somebody's house, if they're a good person, you're kind of riding the coattails of all their good things in society. You're approving of their lifestyle and everything that they do. If they were notorious and not loved as Zacchaeus was, you are basically like a co-conspirator. Like you are guilty by association by doing this. So it's not even the Pharisees, it's not even the Pharisees that are muttering. All the, it says all the people muttered. What is he doing? Why is he going to stay with a sinner? And he literally is just sitting there knowing full well their hearts. And, and I'm just gonna read some of this. Y'all don't have to flip there. Zacchaeus, stood up. this is Zacchaeus's response to the Lord inviting him to his own house. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. That was like the most extreme punishment for cheating people from the Mosaic law, but also giving half your property away was unheard of generosity in the moment. 
Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And so we see in this moment, Zacchaeus responds, immediately lays down what clearly was his attachment in the world, which was greed for specifically money and wealth and power, whatever it was, lays it down. And Jesus says, salvation has come. And, and the reason that stuck out to me, and I just want to set us up with that is partially because the parable we're about to read comes immediately after this scene of Zacchaeus and Jesus interacting. But also Jesus saying salvation has come to this house. Again, it is a moment just like the moment that I experienced about almost exactly eight years ago now where the spirit of God met me and changed my heart and transformed my life. And it starts with that moment, but salvation in Jesus' mind is not a transaction, it's transformation. Like Jesus has a very, very, very strong agenda for my life and your life. And however much to the level that we agree with and respond to his invitation, that's the level of transformation we're gonna experience. Salvation is not just from hell eternally, it's from the things that bind us here and now. It's connected to the Greek word for healing. Like it's connected to the Latin where we get salve from, like the bandages you put on a wound to heal. Like he wants to heal us of the brokenness inside us, not just save us for eternity. But we have to have both of those perspectives in mind as we go to this next parable. So if you have your Bible with me, would you raise it up? Let me see it. Okay. I've, I've definitely asked this one before, but especially since it's cool out, if fall is like your favorite season, can you just keep your Bibles in the air? I'd say that's 60%. Good to know. Good to know. Anybody, anybody summer, put your Bible back up if you're summer. That's roughly the other 35%. So 5% of y'all, are you from somewhere where it's cold or are you crazy and do you like spring? Like, do you like allergies or spring? Bold. Honestly, you spring people are like that. You're like, yes, I love spring. And I'm like, I don't get that whatsoever. No, no connection in my life. Luke 19 is where we're at. Luke 19, you'll see Zacchaeus, the tax collector, right at the beginning of that. But we are going to go to the parable of the 10 minas. There's no I in Greek, so you gotta say it kind of Greek sounding, minas. Look at somebody next to you and say minas. There's, there's no I there, so it's, you really gotta emphasize that A. So we're gonna be reading this parable and I just kinda wanted to set the stage for us. A parable is generally a story that's used by Jesus to highlight truth about one of three things most of the time, not always, but most of the time. Truth about God, truth about who we are, humanity, or a truth about the kingdom of God, which is the mixing of the two. So a parable is this story. It's gonna connect to real world things at times we'll see like he was connecting to like hot topic issues with this parable and others, but it's generally this hypothetical story that Jesus tells to highlight truths about himself and God, humanity or the kingdom of God, which is kind of the, the blending of both. So we're gonna start in verse 11 and read all the way to verse 27. While they were listening to this, so they were literally listening to Zacchaeus and Jesus have that interaction. Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Okay, so we see a truth about the kingdom of God. They thought this was going to be a physical kingdom like Jesus going to Jerusalem was, he's gonna overthrow the Romans and be a physical king. And he's like, that's, that's not what this is about. So Jesus said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10, 10 minas just an amount of money. 10 servants, 10 minas, each of them got one mina. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. 
The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. Given a small amount of money, then given a huge responsibility to run 10 cities. The second one came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Pretty much make this joke every time, but a nice, easy passage of Jesus for the youth pastor to teach this morning. And I'm not even gonna pretend to blame Miles. I really felt like the Lord put that one on my heart. I chose this one. And then I read it and I was like, are you serious? And so we're gonna have fun opening this today, but I'm gonna just, we'll start in kind of the most aggressive spot because it needs to be addressed right now because it's honestly not particularly the point of this parable, but this truth has to be stated right now. There is a group of people, this is not the servants. There's 10 servants that this king, which is Jesus, has entrusted resources and responsibilities to. There's a delegation that's not these 10 servants. These are a separate group of people that say, we don't want this guy to be our king. He becomes king. And then he says, kill them in front of me. This picture has two reference that, that I'm just gonna, like I said, say now, because this, this parable is not particularly about salvation, although it encompasses that. This is the group of people, both in Jesus' time, the Jewish leaders that rejected him, and he's saying they've completely missed it, but then eternally, these are the people who reject Jesus eternally. At the end of history, that's what we're seeing, the king returning, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at some end times pictures here. People who reject Jesus eternally, in the end, get what they want, which is separation from him. And I say that to say, mostly I say that because it's in the passage and to be faithful to the passage, I need to talk about it. But I also say that to you, if you're like, I'm on the fence, I don't know. This is not me trying to scare you out of hell. That's not what I'm doing. I am just pointing out that that is a truth that we believe because Jesus is better and I love you and I want more for you. Like I just have to put that forward as that is a, a thing that is happening in this parable. As Jesus is talking to us, disciples of Jesus, if that's you, he points out that that is what happens when people don't know Jesus. So hell is a very real place and it's separation from Jesus eternally. And only in Jesus can life be found. So this is me saying this in love, you owe it to yourself to see what Jesus is all about, to see what he says, to see what this word says about him, to see what life with him actually looks like, you owe it to yourself to ask those questions. If you came here today and you're like, I don't even feel like I have anybody to ask those questions out, we would love to connect with you. Like Miles said, we're gonna have a prayer team at the end, our connect team, really anybody with a name tag or me or anybody at the front, we'd love to talk to you about it, but you owe it to yourself to ask those questions of Jesus, of life, of 
who is Jesus to you? Like you owe it to yourself to say that. So I just wanted to hit that, like I said, because it's, it's part of this parable, but not, not the primary direction that Jesus is going. And so it's important to say, you might've heard of the parable of the talents. That's in Matthew. Very, very similar story to this, but I'm gonna make the, the claim here and, and people disagree on either side of this. At the end of the day, we can be reconciled regardless. But I think the telling in Matthew is Jesus telling a very similar story, but in a different setting. Matthew's is directly to the 12 disciples in Jerusalem. Luke's telling is to this crowd outside of Jericho. And so I think there's differences that are intentional here, but just if you know, and you're like, wait, I know the Matthew story really well, there's some details that are slightly different and that's okay. So just wanted to make that claim at the beginning. And so what do we see here? We see this King, well, he's just a nobleman at first, come to his servant say, hey, listen, I'm going away to receive a kingdom, but I'm gonna come back and I want you to earn something with this money that I'm giving you. So what we have in view here is Jesus talking to, we'll just say disciples in general. It's very intentionally 10 servants, not 12, because if it was 12, we'd be like, okay, that's the 12 disciples. 10 is just kind of complete. So it means us, the disciples there and us disciples reading it 2000 years later saying to us, hey, I'm going to entrust you with this money. Money is just a symbol for the responsibilities and the things that you have in your hands to be faithful with in your life. Could be a wide range of things. I'll talk about that in a second. But we have this King Jesus saying, I'm entrusting these resources, these people, these conversations, these positions, this time, we all got 24 hours in a day, to you to be faithful with and to basically make a profit, if we're gonna use the money image, make a profit with while I'm gone, meaning fruitfulness in our life. This isn't just talking about, again, it's not just talking about money. Not, God's not just wanting us to like make money because then that would only apply to us who have disposable income in America in the 21st century and not most of the disciples throughout history. But he's saying, I want you to be faithful with the things I've been trusted to you. So the king goes away, receives a kingdom. The picture of that is we think Jesus has received a kingdom in heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the father and he is in the already not yet. He has received the kingdom. He has told his disciples at the time, the kingdom has come, it's here, but it will be realized fully with greater authority from Jesus at his second coming, at his return. The king comes back and he starts handing out responsibilities and importance as he is now fully operating in his kingship. Is everybody tracking with me? Jesus was on earth went to receive a kingdom, is in heaven with God the Father. We, the disciples, in this meantime, us disciples in 2022, are called to be responsible and faithfully steward. We're gonna talk about that word steward in a second. What Jesus has entrusted to us in the meantime, knowing that he will return and assume full authority and we will be held responsible for what we did with what he's entrusted to us. That's kind of what we're looking at here. And so I mentioned this, the meanest, the money is, is how I would put this in our life. These are the fundamental responsibilities and things that you are responsible for in your life. And so time, we all have 24 hours. Part of that time, you're responsible to rest and make sure you're being healthy, but we all have 24 hours we're responsible for. At the basis level, we are all responsible for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even though those are Western time constraints. We're responsible for the time that we have in our lives. You're responsible for the roles that you carry, roles I carry, husband, father, the youth pastor at this church, friends to the people I'm with, interactions that I have on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes, the money that has been entrusted to me, resources that have been trusted to me. This moment, I am responsible for stewarding well, even though it's not up to me if it translates to you, but it is up to me if I prepared and stewarded this moment well. God's job is supply, like what you've been given in your life. Your job is stewardship. His job is results. 
Like you can't control what's happened, but he does promise that if you are faithful with what you use, you might not see the fruitfulness that's happening, but if you faithfully steward what he's entrusted to you, there will be fruitfulness. That's the expectation that the king has when he gives the money to the servants. And so I keep using this word stewardship. That is the main point of this parable. This parable is saying, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then in what was that, AD 28 or whatever, that was just a guess, AD 30, 33, I think is when we think Jesus was crucified. If you're a disciple then, you're a disciple now in 2022 and everywhere in between until Jesus comes back. Whatever you have in your life, and I'm talking everything, this is not just material resources, it is down to the conversation you have after this gathering. It is down to the conversation you have at work on Thursday. Every moment, every piece of income, every piece of resource, every relationship that you have, relationships that are broken, relationships that are whole, you are responsible to faithfully steward faithfully use those things in light of Jesus coming back. In light of the fact that our lives, if you're a disciple of Jesus, here's the secret, your life is not about you anymore. In light of that, we are called to faithfully use the things in our lives. So this is just a a kind of working definition of stewardship. If you wanna write this down, it'll be on the screen behind me. Stewardship is the careful, responsible, and tactical management of something entrusted to one's care. Careful, meaning you're not reckless with it, responsible, there's wisdom, there's intentionality, but there's also faith because we serve a God who calls us to walk by faith, not by sight, and tactical, meaning you are unbelievably intentional with the way that you use it. You don't just let things happen in the lives of your children, though we can't control what happens in the lives of our children. If you have children, one of you, part of your mina is to be the spiritual formation director in their life truly believe like Proverbs says, raise a child up in the way they shall go and they will not depart from it. And I say that knowing that there are parents in the room who are like, so I completely missed it because I have children or a child who is not following Jesus. No, again, result is not up to you. You have to trust that the Lord is working in their life. And even if you feel like you've made mistakes, even if you feel like you haven't been faithful in that area, you can trust that God will use a thousand more mistakes than you think he can. God will use a thousand more pains and injuries and hurts in our life, in the lives of our children, in the lives of our friends than you think he can. That's just one example. And and there's a lot of ways that we're called to steward, but management, meaning you're very intentionally using all the pieces of something or someone entrusted to your care. So there's, there's this idea that the things in our lives aren't ours. We talk about bringing the tithe to God. We bring back to God what is God's. God has entrusted you with the finances that you have. God has entrusted you with the family that you were born in and the family that you're in now. God has entrusted you with the job that you're in. Even if you're like, I selfishly took this job and I don't think God told me to, God is still entrusting you with that job, even though you might've gotten there outside of his perspective. He's still using all the things. He can use evil for good and he will use good for his glory. So whatever it is in your life, I'm talking all of it. We are called to very, very intentionally use every piece of it. So the question I I kind of am putting to myself and putting to y'all is every hour and everything, every role, every moment in your life being put to use for the kingdom, not for you. I'm talking like everything. And this matters because we see this eternal perspective in this parable. There's this ancient Jewish saying that I came across. I'm not reading ancient Jewish literature outside of this most of the time. It, it, the rabbi said this all the time, a reward for a duty done is a duty to be done. Meaning when we are faithful now, there is a very real and tangible responsibility that is coming to us when Jesus comes back. 
Scripture says some really weird things. And so we can't fully understand what that's gonna look like. But in light of this, the faithful servants in this were given way more responsibility than the money they were initially entrusted with. Way more joy. Another telling of this is, is the king in another parable says to the servants who are faithful, come join in your master's joy. Like there is a joy to be found in the coming kingdom where Jesus will call us into greater responsibility and purpose. Because at the end of the day, we all want purpose more than anything else. So it might sound exhausting that we're gonna have responsibility there, but what you truly want is purpose. We will have more purpose perfectly there than we do here. So we have to be training to be faithful with the little that we have here. So it matters in light of eternity. And so I'll just kind of say this, if you want to write this down, if you do not order your life, order your life, there's intentionality there. In light of eternity, you will not be fully faithful with what is entrusted to you. If there's not this eternal perspective in view, we will struggle as disciples of Jesus to not get sucked into the temporary viewpoint of our lives. I'm talking temporary as in you're planning for retirement. That is a temporary view in light of eternity. Not saying that's a bad thing, that's a very wise thing to do. That just is the example that came to my mind. But no matter how long-term you think you're thinking, if you are thinking in light of just this life, that is thinking short-term. The oldest person in the room, you are young by standards of your life. You are very young by the standards of your life. We will live eternally with Jesus. And so if we want this life to count, if we want this life to matter, which even as I'm saying that, some people in this room, you might be like, I'm a little like, ambivalent towards that. Truthfully, that probably just means you're numb to that purpose that's been built, that desire for purpose that's been built into you. We all have a desire to matter. And so for all of us, if we want our lives to count, this is not like you need to get success in this world. Honestly, I truly believe we are gonna get to heaven and the person who is getting 10 cities is probably gonna look like somebody that we've never heard of. And that's not, that's not me saying that you shouldn't aim to do really big things or if you're in charge of a big company, that that's not important. You are called to steward whatever is in front of you. And there's not more value over one life than the other. This confronted me in the face in the one mission trip I've gone on. We were in Ghana with Compassion International. And I'm thinking these pastors, we had this breakfast with all these pastors kind of from the area. I'm like, max these people, if they never leave this area, which they probably won't, max maybe know 200 people over the course of their lifetime. Like literally they will know 200 people over the course of their lifetime. So in our perspective, it's like, are we all better than them? Because we will know infinitely more than that and have way more opportunity to tell people about Jesus and have way more resources than them? No, because the value is not in how much God has entrusted to you, but it's in what you do with it. Even a pastor who is in a small tiny tribal town in the middle of nowhere in another country or in the middle of nowhere in the United States and pastors a church of 20 people. Faithfulness in whatever God has called you to is the goal. And if that looks like big things that the world sees, great. The Bible says, let your good works shine before others so they'll glorify your father in heaven. That is great. But the goal is faithfulness. The goal is to steward our lives, not to get to some predetermined aim or hit that mark because no matter how much you achieve in this life, it will not fulfill you. Only the purpose of God will. And so what's the deal with the third servant? This is, this is the part of this parable that really gets me. What's the deal with this third servant? He was terrified of this king, apparently. He just hid the money, like didn't even do anything with it. And he has this picture of the king as this aggressively hard, ruthless, 
honestly like immoral leader is kind of the perspective that we see as this parable is being played out. And so what's the deal with it? What's the deal with this third servant? I think at the end of the day, this servant was fearful of the master based on his own insecurities, not anything the master had done. Meaning if you read it, I'll just read some of the verses. The servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. There's, a, there's an insecurity. There's a fear of not being able to measure up even in trying. So the servant doesn't even try. And then his master replies, like your own words, I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I didn't put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put the money on deposit or put the money in the bank so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Okay, a little disconcerting because we have this image now of Jesus is the king of the, him being like, you said it, I'm this hard aggressive man. There's some people in the room who really struggle, struggle following God because you see him as this harsh, almost brutal God. And so from that perspective, if that is how you see him, even if it's out of fear, we should at least serve him. But the best part is, is that if you read what the king says and what the king did before he says this, you realize that the third servant did not understand the heart of the king whatsoever. The king saying this tone and, oh, you knew, did you, that I was a hard man? Almost as if to say he is pointing back and being like, did I take any of the money I entrusted to the first two servants? I gave them even more responsibility and blessing. The heart of our father is not, and this is, this is not a prosperity gospel thing. This is nothing like that. This is again, eternal perspectives. Keep that in mind. But the heart of our God is not to take what is good in your life, but to give you more. That doesn't mean that there's not trial and there's not pain. We are guaranteed that in this life. But the heart of our father is not this ruthless, aggressive, follow the rules God. That's not who he is. He is compassionate and gracious. Remember, we've talked about this before at this church. The score, if we're keeping score, he brings sin and iniquity to the third generation, blessing, love, compassion, overwhelming positive attitudes towards us to the thousands of generations. Again, that's an eternal perspective in the Hebrew mind. So we have this God who is merciful and compassionate and this King who almost out of frustration is like, did you really think that's who I was? that I was a hard man taking what I didn't earn? No, I've given more blessings to those who are faithful, but to the one who is little and is not faithful, even what they have will be taken from them. That is a hard line from that verse, verse 26, I think. But it in essence means like, if you don't use it, you might lose it. We all want legacy. We all want our children to grow up healthy. We all, again, want impact in this world and impact can look like a thousand different things. But if we do not steward what has been given to us, we're probably gonna slowly start to lose the chance at that impact. We might not lose the thing itself, like that's not really what I'm saying, but we might slowly start to lose the impact we could have had. When you're not present, when we don't cultivate hearing the Father's voice, we start to lose sight of who he is. You know this is true. The, the, the drier the season, the farther you've been away from, from a quiet time consistently, the more you're like, ah, oh, I just gotta earn, earn my way back. I gotta get right and get back to God. Knowing full well that you've been the person who said to other people, that's not who God is. 
You don't have to earn anything to come into his presence. You've been the person who has said that and the person who has believed the lie because we're not stewarding that relationship with our father. So this is the, this is the, the problem for the third servant. And this is the problem for us. We will not faithfully steward our lives. You will not faithfully steward your life without understanding the heart of the king. And that can only happen through proximity. We're talking about stewarding everything in your life. The number one responsibility that every single one of us have, if we are a disciple of Jesus Christ, is to steward, cultivate life with God. Is to steward, cultivate a spiritual life, an awareness that this life is not all that there is, an awareness that God is working in and through us, an awareness that there's a real spiritual battle happening in our lives, awareness that every draw of this world is trying to pull us away from presence with our father and at our father's right hand are blessings forevermore, not in the world. We can only know the heart of the king through proximity. And so that's the first thing that we have to steward. And so this is where, this is where I struggled a little bit because I'm like, I don't think many of us in the room, and maybe this is you, I don't think many of us in the room are the third servant. Like, Many of us at this church, mostly because this is part of the reason that you came to this church, you, like we don't really just settle for showing up on Sunday. Like we've made that clear. That's not really what we're about here. We're not just trying to fill up this room every single Sunday. Honestly, it gets stressful when the room gets filled out as evidenced by y'all being so gracious when the parking lot is backed up down to whatever road that is, completely blanking right now. It's not just about coming to church. So I don't think many of us in this moment are in danger of being the third servant, though that's the, the point of the warning in this passage is don't be the third servant. I think we're, we're plugged into the life of this church or a church. I think we're fairly consistent in community group. I think many of us are ready to serve on the serve day. Like you're ready to do most of the things you faithfully give. I mean, our church is unbelievable at being faithful and giving. Like, I think we do a lot of the spiritual things, but more than we're in danger of being the third servant, I think that we're in danger of just putting the money in the bank. Of just putting the money of what is the, nobody, and none of us are gonna ask this question this way because nobody wants to intentionally not steward their life. But what is the bare minimum that I have to do to be considered faithful? Again, you're not gonna ask that question of yourself in that way, but I think a lot of the times through hurry, through the busyness of life, through all the things that you have going on, through trying to steward your kids well and their schedules, through, I, I keep harping on that, y'all. Clearly, it's on my mind. I'm about to have two children, not just one. It's a whole different ball game, and I know I haven't even gotten there yet. But in many of our minds, it's not, I don't want to steward my life. It's just a lack of an awareness that doing the bare minimum is not stewarding our lives. I don't wanna be the person, and I don't think y'all wanna be the people who get the bare interest, minimum deposit, return on investment of our lives when we get to heaven. We wanna be told, well done, good and faithful servant. Not well done, you made it in as though through fire. And so in our lives, I think we have two main problems and that's gonna lead, we're gonna do the two questions thing again this week, just keep some continuity from last week. But I think we truly believe that in our world, Christians in 2022, that faithfulness looks like doing all the things I just said, being fairly committed, involved at church, plus some measure of success in the world. I think that's what we think stewarding looks like. And I am just here to tell you, though neither of those things are bad, that is not what stewardship looks like. 
Because what happens when we do that is slowly but surely the thing between those two that comes vastly more important is some measure of success in the world. And I know that to be true for me and I know that to be true for y'all because what's the first thing to go when we get really busy? Our personal spiritual life and the connection to our church community. I'm just saying like when you get really busy, when I get really busy, first thing to go, generally my quiet time, first thing to go praying before meals. Cause I'm like, we have to get Maverick to bed. First thing to go, I got a crazy week. We got two events this week at church. I struggled to get to my community group. So at the end of the day, the things that we're called to do, and that's hard for me because I work for a church. So level of success is having a successful ministry, which is not up to me at the end of the day, cause that's up to the spirit of God. But at the end of the day, which one of those is more important? So we have two, two main problems. I did three, but two, we have two. Two main problems to actually stewarding our lives. And so the first problem is we don't understand what true stewardship looks like. Again, just because we are coming to church, we're involved, you come to the serve days, you come to the community groups, does not mean that we're stewarding our lives because there's about 90% of our lives that is not that church engagement. And are we stewarding that 90%? So what does true stewardship look like? And, and I'm honestly, I'm putting myself in your shoes and realizing how this sounds. I'm actually not telling you to do more. I'm probably telling you to do less. I understand how this sounds. It's like, what do you want me to do? What does true stewardship look like? What I want for my life, what I want for your life is full lives. Like every moment I know for a fact that the Lord is using this, even if it's not comfortable to me. Every moment, I'm talking Wednesday afternoon meeting where you're exhausted and on your third cup of coffee, I want you to know that you're going into that meeting, even if it feels meaningless to you, with a purpose and a perspective that God is using this meeting. And so it's generally gonna be, what do you need to subtract? What do you need to pull back? Because God uses margin, the enemy uses hurriedness. When you have no space in your schedule to add anything, but you have to add two things because you know it's the right thing to do, like that's where the enemy is just wearing you down and trying to make even the good things not valuable but creating space and margin actually allows you to be faithful in your life. So two problems, what, we don't understand what true stewardship looks like. So the question that I'm gonna put to us, the question I want to challenge you to talk about with your spouse, community group, friends, whoever your community is, a, a tight knit circle, whatever it looks like, what does true stewardship look like for your life? Because I can't tell you what that is. I can guess for some of us, and I have some suggestions, thoughts here, thinking of my life and just things for me, but it's different for each of us. So you have to process that with your community. Like you have to take that step. You have to make that choice. You have to step into the invitation of Jesus. We can put it forward here. And that, like, that is, as I see it, the only job that I have is saying, here is what I think Jesus is saying to us. And it's up to each of us individually to commit to walk into that. So what does true stewardship look like for your life? College students, truthfully, you might feel busy. You will never have as much flexible free time as you do right now. Time is like your primary thing to be faithful with. College students, I'll tell you this right now, the best time to create habits that will transform your life as you age is right now. It's not next semester when you have one hour less of class because you know that's gonna feel the exact same. It's not in two years when you've graduated because you're gonna feel more hectic and more isolated when you move to the new city. I'm just telling you that right now. It is now to create habits. So college students, and that's if, if you're an adult and you're like, I haven't created habits, the time is now to create habits, whatever those are. Disciplines, spiritual disciplines, tithing, those with jobs, conversations, shifting your mindset around that job, even if that job is primarily to care for your family, which is a good thing. That is a good thing to care for your family. 
Do not let caring for your family become an excuse to make more money to have success in the eyes of the world, unless the Lord is actually, call, actually calling you to do that because you're gonna radically use way more than you want to of it. Just saying. Outside of that, if we don't all shift our perspectives, I know it's easy for me because I work at a church and I talk about spiritual things and a main part of my job this week was reading this to prepare for right now. But if you're not in that situation, which is the vast majority of us in the room, your job is a means to an end. That end is not money, the end is faithfulness. So how do you change your mindset? What does true stewardship look like for you to change your mindset around the job you're gonna walk into tomorrow morning? Parents with kids, again, I said it, and I'm gonna say it again. You are your child's spiritual formation director if you want a title. Like that is a huge role and responsibility that you have. And so what voice in your child's life matters the most? Like if we really think about it, is our main aim for our children for them to be semi-successful in sports and school, get the scholarship, go to that college, get a good degree, get a job and be successful in the eyes of the world? Or are we raising children's children's children. There we go. We needed a laugh. It was getting a little tense. It's good. Are we raising children and are our hearts transforming to where we could actually trust the level of spiritual formation that happened in our child to where if they came to you and said, instead of going to college, I think I'm called to go overseas for a gap year. Just an example. Don't know anybody in the room that that applies to. So if that's you, I promise I didn't know that beforehand, but I'm, I'm serious. Like, are we really just trying to raise children who succeed in this world or children who are faithful to the life of Christ? Like that is when I think about ACC youth, I cannot transform your children. I can teach them and I can pastor them and I can lead them and I can equip our volunteers to do that. And that is my goal. But it is partnering with you parents, upcoming parents to, are we really forming disciples from a very early age? ACC Kids is doing a great job of it. They cannot do it without you. So if you are a parent of a child, what voice matters most? What does success look like? What are you putting in front of them? And I'll just say, put on my full youth pastor hat. If you have a teenager or you're going to have a teenager or you're going to have kids in the future, a huge problem that I see right now is there is one singular voice in the life of your children that has complete authority. And that is the voice of your coach or whatever you choose to participate in, whatever activity. So I'm like, I'm dead serious. And I say this, I did the whole sports thing. Like, I love it. There's so much value in sports. If you're a coach in the room, I promise I'm not trying to roast you. It's not your fault that this is the structure of our society. But I'm just serious. Like, have, when is the last time that you said, no, my child is not going to practice because of the spiritual thing that my family is called to do? That doesn't have to be the ACC youth events. It could be if you feel that the spirit's telling you that. I'm just saying, at the end of the day, coaches, teachers, things that you choose for your children to be involved with, which are good things, but the end of those is success in the world. So those should not have the ultimate voice of authority in your child's life. Like, and if I'm just saying, if you have children near my age or children a little bit above me, let's start to change this culture in Auburn because I don't want to be the only parent telling Maverick, we're not going to practice or that game today. I'm just saying, if just join me in that, please. Teenagers in the room, your main job right now, as much as you cannot stand school, you are being formed to be faithful by doing things that seem unimportant to you. Just be faithful in it. So I'll just stop, empty nest. Oh, I have one. Actually, I did want to say this. <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm sorry. It's just, it is. I, this, I think this is really important because I added this later. If you're an empty nester in the room, you might have more disposable income at this point. So is the question that is guiding your life comfort plus kingdom or is it kingdom over everything with what you're doing with that? 
Just saying that group generally has a little bit more of the money perspective to play with. I'm just asking these questions, not knowing with what the spirit is going to do with that in your life. I am just asking you to step into the invitation of Jesus with me and ask those questions for yourself. The second problem, the second problem, the first is we don't know what that looks like. So please take that to spirit in your community to ask what that looks like in your life. Second problem, many of us are too attached to the world and we are unwilling to do the work. We are unwilling to take the step or we're overwhelmed by the prospect. If you're like me, I'm not the type of person who wants to do a project over four different time periods. I wanna do it all at once. Anybody else like that in the room? If you half raise your hand, I get it. I'm the type of person I wanna sit down, finish an essay, even if it's gonna take me all day. I wanna do it all at once. This is not one project that you are going to figure out this afternoon and it's going to fix your life forever. This is a journey that Jesus of Nazareth is inviting us on of how does faithfulness look like in my life? Because here's the secret, you're gonna figure it out right now and your life's gonna be completely different in two months. You're gonna have different trials, different things that you have to steward. Are we counting the trials in our life all joy? Because that's part of stewardship as well. If you're in a trial today, know that God did not cause that in your life, but he is definitely using it in your life and it's on you to steward that well. But the question is, are you willing? Are you willing to step into, are you willing to commit to a process of transformation that will take our whole lifetime or until Jesus comes back? It won't be completed fully here, but we all want purpose. I want purpose so bad for my life and I want purpose so badly for your life. So this is a process that we're stepping into. Again, subtraction, not addition. This is not, you have to figure this all out right now, but you have to be willing to do the work because nobody can make you do it. No matter how convicting or aggressive myself, Gage or Miles or whoever's up here will come across, no matter how powerful the worship is, no matter how radical your community group even gets with this, it is you who has to be willing to step into this. This is what Jesus was talking about through the scriptures when it said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning there's effort and intentionality to step into this. So the question, the second question, the most important one that I wanna ask is, are you willing? Our systems, I've, I've heard this, if you're in business, you've probably heard this too. Your system is perfectly designed to get you the results you're getting. So if you want a picture of what this looks like, it's being more radical five years from now than you are right now. Like truthfully, think about it in your life. Can you confidently say you look more like Jesus this year than you did two years ago? That's not a judgmental thing because that's challenging for me to answer even as I ask that question. But faithfulness and fruitfulness in our life looks like, I am looking more like Jesus. I truthfully want for your life, I want for my life. I want us to be more radical at 80, 90 or beyond if you live that long than you are right now. The passionate college student who's in the room, the passionate person, you just have so much zeal for God. I want you to be more passionate and more effective with that passion 10 years from now than you are right now. And it might look different and that's okay. The parent who's burned out in the room, I know that if you are in here, you've had at least a moment and if you're in on this message, you probably had a moment of passion with Jesus. I want that, but for your whole life. Moments like this are just a spark that you have to then bring kindling to, if you will. The Spirit's gonna bring oxygen. That's what's gonna feed the fire, but you have to lay the pieces of your life into the fire to use Miles' phrase from last week, to become all flame. Like I want that for my life and I want it for yours. 
So as we close today, are you willing? Are you willing to detach from the world? Are you willing to be more present with family and friends? Are you willing to turn your phone off? Are you willing to sacrifice and have a, have a real Sabbath? Are you willing to sacrifice and say, I am not the most, most important piece in my life and work will be okay without me for 12 hours? Are you willing to have that hard conversation? Are you willing to be vulnerable? Are you willing to go to that hard place and heal trauma and wounds from your past that you know is affecting your family now? Like, are you willing to do these things? Are you willing to blow up your schedule? Are you willing to fail in the eyes of the world? Are you willing to surrender your desires for the kingdom? If so, you're gonna receive more life than you could have dreamed. And so this is where we just go, my, my favorite passage pretty much in the entire Bible, Hebrews 12. Therefore throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, with faithfulness, the race marked out for us. We all have different races, different things to run, different paths to go, different responsibilities. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the father. Consider him, look to him, look to our savior who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Are you willing today to step into that guiding us to? This is a hard message. This is a challenging teaching. This is a tough parable to swallow and it can only do its full work when we process it in our life. But you have to answer the question first, are you willing? And to that, we don't have a great high priest who's not able to empathize with this challenge, with this brokenness, with the struggle in us, even as we hear this hard message. But we have one who's experienced everything just as we have yet he did not sin. He's sitting at the right hand so that right now we can go to him. So that's why we take communion. We take communion to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. The next thing in your Bibles after parable of the 10 Minas is the entry into Jerusalem. Jesus is in Jerusalem ready to die for us. And he's saying, while I'm gone, please be faithful because that is the only way that you find life. That is the only life that is worth living. So take out your communion elements, raise your hand. This is for followers of Jesus who are connected to this church or another local church. If that's not you, you can just put that back under your seat. We'll pick it up after. Raise your hand if you don't have one. Somebody from our team will get to you. I promise it's not awkward. Just raise your hand if you don't have one. They'll get to you, they'll see you. But we take these elements as a remembrance of what Jesus did to us. There is a, if you're a believer in Christ, there is a grace that is received when we take these and remember who Jesus is because Jesus' grace did not just save you one time, it is sustaining you now. So as we go into this communion time, I want you to ask yourself the question and ask Jesus to meet you with grace in it. Are you willing to step into this process? Are you willing to step into this journey? Because life is on the other side of it. The band will come up, they'll start playing. They'll probably start even singing over us. They'll call us to stand when it's time, but take this time to reflect, go to the Lord, look to him who knew no sin, who died for us while we were still sinners to find grace and empowering, to answer the question in your own life. Are you willing? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for each person in the room. Thank you for the struggles and the trials that you are using in each of our lives. Lord, thank you for the joys and the victories and the things of this life that we are so grateful for this morning. And I pray in this moment, Holy Spirit, would you breathe in each of our hearts. If there's somebody in this room who does not know you, they've never tasted of your grace, would this be the moment that they point back to as the spark of their life? And Lord, for us who have been maybe following you for longer, 
than we even think. Like it's mind blowing to me that it's been eight years. And that's not even that long. But Lord, for those of us in the room, would you breathe in this moment to breathe faithfulness in us, to breathe stewardship in us, that we would catch a glimpse of life with you and want that more than anything the world has. Lord, do your work within us in this moment. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen.